Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. The following podcast is an edited recording of a keynote panel at the recent Reuters Commodity Trading USA event in Houston. The conference was hosted by ING, who is the leading commodity finance bank globally with seven locations worldwide, including New York and Houston. Our panelists included Matthew Rossetti, who manages ING's commodity finance business in the Americas, Sebastian Barrick, head of Citadel's commodities business unit, Ben Sutton, founder and CEO of 61 Commodities, and Summer Merzinger, commissioner at the CFTC. The panel was focused on navigating the new normal in commodities, high prices, high volatility, and increased margin requirements against a backdrop of geopolitical risk, supply chain challenges, and an energy crisis. This is a recording of a webinar, so the audio quality is different to our normal episodes, but I hope you enjoy nonetheless, given the panelists represent some of the leading figures in the industry. As always, please do leave us a review to help support the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Uh, Paul Chapman, I'm the uh, co-partner at HC Group, a search and talent advisory business in the commodities sector, and also host of the HC Insider podcast. Uh, Sebastian Barrick, I, uh, I run Citadel <coughs> Commodities, uh, have, have been in the industry for 25 years and uh, at Citadel for five, uh, and, and enjoying being in, the, uh, in some of the most interesting times that we've seen in commodities in my, in my career. Ben Sutton, I'm the founder and CEO of 61 Commodities. Uh, like Seb, I've been in the industry for about 25 years. I've been in the States now for 22 of those. Um, and this is, without a doubt, the most interesting time in energy markets that I've seen. Good morning. I'm Summer Mersinger. I'm a newly sworn in commissioner at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, while I'm relatively new at the CFTC, I spent most of my career on Capitol Hill and um, handling a lot of policy around financial services industry. Matt Rossetti, I uh, manage the commodity finance business for ING in North America. I've been in the uh, commodity finance space for a little over 20 years, which I think equates to when my uh, headshot was taken. So. <laughs> <laughs> So today we're talking about navigating the new normal in the commodities sector, um, a period of, as Ben said, rising prices and other extreme elements like volatility, geopolitical risk, etc. I want to start off, before we go into what makes this super cycle somewhat unique, just talking about the, the general rise in prices and, and what's behind that. And Seb, maybe you can lead us off. Yeah, I think the, uh, the term super cycle gets bandied around quite quite freely, but um, in, its, in its core essence, it typically refers to when you have a sustained period of, of increasing demand and then uh, prices higher than long-term averages for a period of sort of six to ten years. Uh, and, the, and the reason why it lasts for that long is that the supply response in commodities requires long periods of investment to get us to there. So just to understand exactly where we are versus that concept or that, that definition, but we didn't, we didn't proceed this with extremely low periods of prices and, and very low periods of underinvestment. What got us to this point here today was really one of the greatest demand shocks in the history of, of, of commodities. So post, post the pandemic, we saw oil demand fall by as much as 25% for a period of time. Uh, there were power markets in, in places like Italy where power demand was falling by 20%. 
And what then followed on from that was essentially a, a, a required supply response that would allow us to somehow balance the markets for that period of time. So if you just look at the oil industry, OPEC was the first to respond and they cut production by uh, a dramatic 20%, 10 million barrels. Uh, the US uh, oil, oil and gas industry cut their production by 20%, 3.8 million barrels at the, uh, at the trough. Um, and that, that was more of a commercial response to that. So it was, a, it was a very interesting point of how we actually got there, just a, a dramatic demand response and then a supply response that followed. And as you roll forward to today, well, interestingly, demand has actually not even gotten back to where we were pre those levels in, the, in, in uh, many of the energy markets, and in particular oil. And then where do we go from here today in terms of a supply response? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the producers who cut that supply are very hesitant to then turn back on production. So if you look at, again, OPEC, uh, they have brought production back on, but we're still 2 million barrels below where we were at the, uh, at the peak of production prior to that period. They're being very careful to manage the market to ensure we don't get back into a period of oversupply, given what we've just been through. And with these sort of continued rolling COVID impacts that uh, uh, we're now into the probably the, the third or fourth uh, evolution of this in China being in a, in a COVID lockdown is certainly knocking... Uh, uh, a lot of demand out of the sector. So OPEC's managing it very carefully and actually quite well in terms of making sure the market doesn't go back into a supply imbalance. If you look at another industry, uh, agriculture, we got here in a very different way. Demand really didn't change or, or fall during the, uh, during the COVID period. But what actually transpired there was that um, uh, it was more recent in terms of what, what has been happening in, in the Ukraine. So a pretty large supply shock is occurring here, so just number of acres that are being planted in, in, in the Ukraine in particular, but more importantly, it's just the sheer logistical constraints of getting the commodity to the market. So, so the, the lack of export capability or capacity through the Baltic Sea is really tightening up supply at this point in time. And then from there, we had uh, some idiosyncratic issues with, in terms of weather-driven uh, production shortages in North and South America. And then with the, uh, the, the five-year plan coming out of China a few years ago saying that they wanted to build stocks and inventory of grains across the world, then, uh, then China has turned to be a net importer of grains. So the, the agricultural industry has gotten to a point of effectively constrained supply and demand, but from a very different form and way. I don't love the concept of, or, or, or just the naming of the super cycle here, because it has been caused by just a series of idiosyncratic events that have gotten us to this point. And then just to put it in place, if we were to just magically resolve all issues in the Ukraine and Russia tomorrow and all, all gas, all oil and all agricultural products were allowed to free flow tomorrow morning, we'd actually free up the, uh, the supply demand constraint at this point in time when we'd be in a, be in a place of, of balance or even, even uh, very well supplied and prices would, uh, would resolve accordingly. Do I think that's going to happen? Unlikely. But I'm sure we'll touch on some of the topics beyond that. That's, but that's just a starting point from the super cycle concept. Thanks, Seb. I mean, one of the things that I guess as commentators are defining this super cycle by is energy transition, both in longer term uncertainty of investment, be it in projects, et cetera, over, especially when they involve hydrocarbons. The other is, of course, you're seeing this run up in, in energy prices in, in Europe in particular, with an energy crisis. A lot of people tie that to an over-reliance on renewables. Ben, can you just talk to us where you think the energy transition narrative is playing into whether, whether it is or not a super cycle, but certainly a run-up in prices that we're seeing right now. Yeah, so as it relates to energy transition, or as, as we do refer to it occasionally, sort of an energy substitution. So what we've seen is reliable forms of energy being replaced by sustainable forms of energy. And Europe's a great example. So I, I think people may have already forgotten that 
Prices in Europe today, are, if we put them in a US dollar equivalent, they're currently trading around $27 an MMBTU. That's lower than where they were trading in Q4 of last year. So despite what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, we're experiencing these challenges last year. And that was on the back of, you know, if we use Germany as, as, as an example of some of their policies of what they've done, you know, 10, 11 years ago, Germany had 25% of their power fleet was forms of uranium and, and, and nuclear generation. They've made the decision to decommission all that. So I think as of, as of this year, that's about 5%, and by the end of 2022, it'll be zero. They're still burning coal. They're still burning dirty coal. But they're very reliant upon wind and solar. And last year, we saw in a, you know, a, a very low wind summer, very low levels of, of, of natural gas inventory. So the transition as such, um, what we've seen is a real lack of investment into the, you know, the fossil fuel space. And the transition is going to take a very long time. People, I think there's, there's certain commentators that believe the transition can happen in you know, 10 years. Well, until, until we develop a, a form of storing power um, and reliably, um, that won't happen. So battery technology has been, you know, is, is advancing, but until we actually find a solution and we actually have a way of storing wind and solar generation, um, we can't really complete that, that, that transition. And probably that leads a bit into you know, ESG strategy and where money's flowing and you know, everything in terms of investment dollars over the last, certainly the last five years, is really focused on ESG initiatives and, and that renewable form of energy. Um, and very little dollars are flowing into you know, fossil fuels. Mm. So, thanks, thanks, Ben. So, I mean, that does present a challenge both to organisations and, and regulators and governments in the sense that you've got this transition that takes, is going to take a long time. You're having dollars flow into renewable energy that has problems with intermittency, as you mentioned, and yet we still need that hydrocarbon baseload to, to keep power prices somewhat normal. There's a lot of concern at the moment about power prices this summer. Maybe, Summer, you can give us the, the take from uh, the CFTC on whether, you know, what the risks are in, in this run-up in prices that we're seeing more broadly. Yes, yeah, so we are seeing, I mean, as everyone mentioned here, there are some really unique um, market fundamentals that are, are playing into the markets, and our role as a regulator is to really make sure those markets are able to function as price discovery mechanisms and risk hedging. And at the end of the day, I think with, you know, kind of this transition to a net zero economy with some of the price volatility we're seeing, the derivatives markets can really be a useful tool, but we have to make sure that they're operating as, as needed. So, um, you know, we really spend a lot of time just watching the market, making sure that it, it does its role and that the exchanges are communicating with us and that they have the right amount of, of margin to um, absorb some of the, the market volatility. And regardless of what's happening on the ground, we just are really looking at the market itself to make sure that it's functioning as it should. Thanks. I mean, and I want to come back to the role of <clears throat> exchanges and, and margins in particular when we talk about some of how, how organizations are trying to manage this environment. Before we just talk, staying on the, on the super cycle, excuse the, uh, <laughs> excuse the comment, but uh, staying on the run-up in prices, it has absolutely been defined by uh, a lack of in, flows of capital to the commodity markets you would normally see. And because of this extreme volatility, that's introducing a lot of liquidity risk into the market, especially as now organizations are trading through exchanges as opposed to OTC historically. Matthew, you're front and center 
on financing the commodity trading world. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there and, and how that's perhaps exacerbating some of the challenges organizations face? Yeah, ironically, the increased volatility, while wonderful for traders like Ben and, and Seb and their businesses, those, those greater bid-ask spreads create more profit opportunities. It does create demands for and needs for a greater liquidity, right? So in the commodity finance space, is dominated by banks, said by a banker, right? But, um, and, and I don't see that changing for some time. I think maybe a, a micro example of that would be the, the large unfunded or LC needs, um, particularly in the U.S. gas space, right? Ben and Seb know this particularly well. Um, those are things that, that other institutions just can't do, right? So an inherent advantage there uh, by the lenders. There are about 400 banks or so globally that lend to the commodity finance space. The unique Reality, however, is, is the top 10 or so are about 40 to 45 percent probably of the market share, right? Depends how you calculate things. And this is a massive space. Uh, well, It depends how you calculate it, but well over a trillion dollars or more, right? So it depends if you add in receivable discounting, repos, et cetera, but inventory intermediations. But, but a large space, largely dominated, again, by, by the top 10 banks many of them of which are, are Asian and, and European lenders. But the volatility we're seeing, yes, um, the increased prices that we saw uh, recently in TTF gas over in Europe to up to today uh, in U.S. gas, elevated prices is putting extreme pressure on the balance sheets of the traders and in turn then to, to the commodity finance banks. Yeah. Um, I guess, Seb, back to you. Can you just comment on the volatility that we're talking about Matthew mentioned that was good for profits, but can you talk about that volatility and then also tie in, I think, the energy transition piece as well, because you and Ben are very much front and center on that, trying to navigate these markets as they're going through transition. Yeah, and I think the, um, the concept of energy transition, people need to focus more on the concept of the transition itself. What are the obligations of all the different parties to ensure that transition is somewhat seamless? It is one of the most complex concepts that we will deal with in, in this industry for, uh, for a long period of time. So we will go from a fossil fuel-based energy supply to a renewable-based energy supply. How you get there and manage that is a very, very challenging process. And essentially, you need to do two things. One is you need to incentivize and subsidize renewable growth in, in terms of that industry. So countries like the US and, and Germany, et cetera, are doing a very good job of incentivizing that. And then importantly, and I think where, where some countries are doing this well and others have underthought the consequences, is that you still need to keep the thermal and the fossil-based generation not actually there to necessarily be supplying baseload power, et cetera, but to be there in, in the case of an emergency. Uh, the emergency. So when we have issues in terms of low wind and uh, low renewables out of Germany, then to ensure that you have literally coal plants sitting in uh, as ancillary services waiting there to turn on, you're actually paying them to not produce. You're paying them to just wait there in the event of, a, of an emergency. And we've seen that with, um, with the uh, Storm Uri in the US. We, we see it pretty regularly in, uh, in Germany. And even with policies of what Germany has done is they've actually got different layers of of what they call ancillary services, which is essentially just reserves of, of supply of power sitting there waiting to turn on in the event of renewables not performing. And that will just naturally happen. You can have uh, capacity on wind falling from 40% uh, down to less than 10% when you have a very low period of, uh, of generation. And, and that concept is, where is that money going to come from? Well, it obviously has to come from government uh, incentives and having carbon taxes that allows you to then fund this is obviously part of that. But um, 
I think where a lot of this is missed is that people focus too much on let's get as quickly as we possibly can into the renewable sector, which is good. That's a very good outcome for the world. But you still need to invest very heavily, and it can only be done at a government level to ensure that those uh, that, that fossil and thermal uh, supply just stays in line. So that's a, that is quite a tenuous concept that the world is grappling with. And if you do that too quickly, then what ensures is prices go higher and volatility goes extremely high because the market is trying to grapple with where does price set during these periods of, uh, of low renewable generation. So we're going through that now, and countries, some have managed it quite well, some are still setting out policies to do so, but it's, um, uh, it has to be a very actively managed process to make sure that, this, this, uh, that we can get through this process uh, or transition seamlessly. Hmm. Thanks. There is a perception out there that traders are simply you know, taking rent from the market, right? But they fundamentally are vital to managing that volatility and those prices which, as you say, Seb, are extremely volatile at the moment. Ben, maybe say a few words for your industry. I mean, yeah. how crucial are traders and trading to managing these periods of high volatility? So the role of traders and trading in, in, in commodity markets is to warehouse risk. So we warehouse risk that companies either A, don't want to warehouse that risk, or B, can't warehouse that risk. So in environments with, of high volatility, the need or the, the want of traders is, 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 is significant. The challenge that our industry has at the moment is over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of consolidation in the trading space. So a lot of the, the large firms that were around in the 2000s, 2010s, like a lot of the banks were in this space, they're no longer in the space. So they're not providing that, that risk management that, that is required. Um, and in these times of high prices, then the, the need for, like our balance sheet, for example, is is challenged because we, we have a, an environment where 12 months ago the price of gas was three or four times lower than what it is. So every, every transaction that we do now is significantly more expensive um, and the, the, the want and need from, from the market is, is greater in, in times of high volatility. We want more traders in this market. So more traders in this market will mean more of a, a larger warehouse to, to warehouse that risk. And subsequent to that is, you know, with, with more risk being out of warehouse, volatility should, should, should subside. But I think we're going to talk about it later, about the challenges of entry, specifically here in the US market into the, into the energy space and trying to get access and entry points into this market is, is very challenging. Yes, and maybe someone I'd like you to comment on that. But first, it's on Matthew. What Ben is talking about there is somewhat scale, right, in order to get the funding and to be able to warehouse that risk, the size of the balance sheet needed. Ben, I mean, your organization is one of the very few, if not the only, new entrant into the space. You know, that was four years physicals. ago. Yeah, four years ago, right? Yeah. Matthew, can you just talk to, there is this concentration of banks. A lot of them are, have taken sufficient risk already. Yep. You know, how, how can banking facilitate having more entrants that then supports the market? It's been a, a challenge we've grappled with for decades. Um, I think there's a, there's a mistruth out there that the banks have stopped financing the smaller traders. Now, there has been a flight to quality, so to speak, over the past decade or so, and it's on the back of some fraud incidents in the space where the banks certainly do prefer and have chased the, the largest of traders. Um, but many, many smaller to mid-sized players are getting financed, and that's a, that's a positive thing, right? Because then they can grow and become the next large trader. What, what we've seen is, is not necessarily new financiers or new entrants into the spaces, but more, more so folks who want to co-invest or invest behind the banks, right? Whether they be insurers, um, asset managers, 
the challenge has been that the, the margins are not particularly attractive. They're relatively thin, so only the largest banks with the biggest balance sheets and the greatest amount of leverage can play. You don't see very much from a trade finance fund perspective. There's a, there's a boneyard full of, of trade financiers that have, that have come and gone because their business model is challenged, right? If you can't compete with the banks on price or leverage, and there's really no space for you in the capital structure to play with some of the larger traders. You have to go down market into challenging regions, right? And they've all been hit by, by, by fraud or, or, or excessive risk costs and been knocked out of the space. So it's really, again, it goes back to that concentration of banks, um, largely, again, Asian and, and, and European for the most part. Yeah. Summer, so firstly, talking to Ben's point, how is the CFTC comfortable with the number of participants in the market? And secondly, a question from the audience is, you know, how are volatilities affecting compliance in these markets as well, given you know, what we're seeing going on? Yep. Well, and I think we, we're a regulator that um, you know, we certainly welcome new players in our market, but we also understand that these markets are, you know, historically kind of institutional, you know, investors who are very familiar with the volatility involved and what it takes to to stay in these markets. So, you know, we have to really look at, okay, do these new entrants, you know, do they fit the kind of mold of, you know, here are the regulations, here's what you have to, uh, here's what you have to follow as far as, you know, following our regulations and, and rules to enter in these markets. And, you know, we, we, we have a process we go through um, whenever somebody kind of enters in. And then as far as kind of price, the, the volatility and how that impacts our role as a regulator, you know, we, we do have to look very carefully at, at what's causing the volatility. Is it market conditions? Is there something going on? inside the market trading-wise um, that is questionable. Um, there's a lot of surveillance that goes into that, uh, making sure that, again, the markets are working the way they're supposed to based on market fundamentals and there's not some other factor in there. So certainly our, our enforcement team has, has been busy based on a lot of the, the swings we're seeing, the price swings. But that doesn't always mean that they conclude there was there was a bad actor in the market. You know, it, it sometimes just is the way the market worked based on the fundamentals. So, but it certainly it certainly keeps our enforcement team busy. And then, as a market regulator, we work very closely with with the exchanges and the participants to make sure whatever the framework is, whatever the structure is, that it can support what's occurring. So, you know, in, in volatile times, you know, to make sure that these markets are orderly and and that things are happening as they should and there's plenty of transparency, you know, we'll frequently engage with with our market participants and, and our registrants and say, okay, are there changes that can be made? Is there something we should be looking at? You know, let's go back and look and see what was going on. And does something need to change in our regulations? Does something need to change in, you know, maybe the, the rules around certain contracts? So it's, it's an ongoing process, and it certainly kept our staff very busy over the last few years. Thank you, uh, <clears throat> thanks, Summer. So I, I guess, Seb, you know, you're, you're, you lead an organization that is uh, managing risk in the commodity space, and it seems like that's gone from sort of, 
just market risk and some credit risk and so forth to now, you know, in this period of really high volatility where margin requirements are going up, it's now also position risk and liquidity risk. Can you just talk to the risks that are inherent in the business and how, you know, how organizations, how Citadel are managing them? Yes, yeah, so just, uh, just as a backdrop, I've sat on, sat on the boards of companies that are very small trading entities. I now run uh, commodities for Citadel and worked at a bank before, so I've got a, a decent background in terms of what that means for each of these uh, players in the market. But um, to put it frankly, it, has been, it would have been an incredibly challenging time for a lot of trading businesses in the last six months, not because the opportunities were not fantastic, but the actual management of the risk is actually uh, reasonably stressful for the types of risk that people are taking. So just to simplify it, the types of risks that a trading company take, market risk, credit risk, operational risk, and funding risk is essentially how you, how you break it down into. And as you come into these types of markets, then everybody tends to focus on the market and the credit risk because you're facing counterparties, you've got, you've got positions on that you need to manage, and then at a certain point, funding and liquidity risk becomes the primary objective for all trading entities. And why is that? Because trading companies themselves run in an, in an industry and a business that run on incredibly thin margins. Often the margin that a, that a physical trader will take is less than 1% gross margin. That's before taking into account any, any of their real costs associated to that. So when you're running a business that has low gross margin, almost definitionally you need to run, run a leveraged business model. So the average debt equity uh, ratio for a, for a trading company is around 3 to 5x. You'll go to banks for working capital facilities. You might have some accordion or extendable facility in place to get you through a period of high volatility. But when prices go up by 2, 3, 400% in, um, in a space of six months, then most of these trading companies are not prepared for and don't have the, have the funding and liquidity backing to then get them through that. So essentially, a lot of the, the, the CFOs and, and the small trading companies in particular are, are going through periods of extreme stress where their banking facilities can't be extended to the same degree. So I think what, uh, you know, what was a real highlight for me is that most uh, cycles that we go through, it is really focused on market and credit risk, and, and that's where a lot of the trading companies spend a lot of their time focused on that. Points of extreme stress when prices and volatility go up by and, and move by as much as they have, then funding and liquidity risk becomes the primary objective there. And uh, I think there were some challenging times that would have been across the industry for a lot of the uh, small to medium-sized players. We can maybe touch on a little bit later what that means for the entire industry going forward. But it was uh, it was certainly a challenging period and driven by liquidity risk more than uh, more than even the, the market and credit risk that people faced. Yeah, there's also a lot of the participants are global as well and cross commodity. Right? So there's a run-up in metals prices like we saw in nickel on the LME and natural gas at the same time with LNG. It can be significantly challenging. Ben, maybe you can talk to that, that point about liquidity. And then, Matthew, I'd love to get your comments on, you know, you mentioned, obviously, there's this concentration of financing. And there are all these alternative financing opportunities out there. But providing that money on time sufficiently quickly is, is really the challenge. But... I know I like to ask double questions, but Ben, yeah. you need to start first. <laughs> um, Seb makes a great point. Uh, funding and liquidity is, is critical right now. And I'm asked on a regular basis, probably daily, from investors and, and others about, you know, what's the most valuable contract in our portfolio? People expect me to say a certain sale agreement or a purchase agreement or a certain market view that we might have. It's our lending facility. It's our borrowing base. Without that, we can't operate. And just to put it in, in scale and perspective, we're in the process to start a renewal process around our, our, our lending facility, which will be four or five times the size of what it was 12 months ago. And that's on a physical portfolio that is essentially the same size of what it was you know, this time last year. 
that's the need and the you know the ask of people like Matt and others. You know, we started when we started this business. We had you know one or two banks. We now have six. We'll go to ten. Um, we need more and more participants, more and more banks to come and support what we do uh, because it's, it's critical. It comes back to that, that that volatility question that you asked previously. We need more and more support to, to manage our time, manage this path through this very volatile time. Provide the services to our clients that they need in terms of managing their risks. That volatility and liquidity is, is is critical. Like if we, I was looking this morning at, you know, what is the initial margin requirement on a prompt gas contract in in Henry Hub? So this time last year it was about two thousand dollars a contract. Today it's over nine thousand per contract. You know, it's it's you know, it, it, it's a challenging time and. You know, navigating your way through it, I spend more of my day working on liquidity than I do on anything else. Um, mm. But it's, as I said, it's it's an opportunity. It's 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 finding partners that, that are willing to to sit down and work with you and talk about you know how does this market work. And thankfully, we have lenders and banks in this space that understand our market very well and are there to support what we do. But we need more of it. The HC Insider Podcast is brought to you by HC Group a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Matthew, so talking to that, Ben raises a very good point there about obviously the need for just more investment overall. There is this headwind in the sense that lots of banks have, not, have been selectively not financing certain hydrocarbons, coal, etc. There is a lot of pressure from stakeholders, that, a lot of banks that could come into this space not to fund in hydrocarbons from an ESG standpoint. So weaving that in, you know, how can we thread this needle of supplying the liquidity and the financing the commodity industry needs to keep stable prices, functioning markets, which are to everyone's benefit? That doesn't help, nor do uh, the additional capital allocations that you need to, to, to assign to your business um, through Basel IV, right? So an additional 25% or so makes it less remunerative to, to lend to the business. So there are indeed headwinds. Um, I mentioned that the majority of banks are European and Asian, right? So you mentioned ESG, Paul. European banks in particular take this topic extremely seriously, right? So we ourselves are looking to continue to steer our clients and our portfolio towards a a net zero world, but ING particularly takes a pretty pragmatic approach in that regard in, in, in identifying the likes of natural gas as, as more of a bridging fuel, right, to get us there over the course of 10 years or so. But it has indeed um, created additional headwinds for sure. Um, I will uh, come back to questions at the end. I know there's some great questions popping up. Before we move on, Summer, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, obviously, regulation has pushed trading onto exchanges, uh, which, of course, would then require margins compared to the OTC market. How is that change the the level of risk, perhaps, in in commodity trading? Well, at the end of the day, um, our job as regulators is to make sure these exchanges are resilient. And what I will say is even, you know, kind of at the heart of market volatility um, during the pandemic and since, we were very comfortable that our exchanges were well capitalized and that they were were not going to fail. And 
margin rules and requirements worked in that sense. But on the other hand, I do understand that anytime you have that margin concentrated in an exchange, it's not in the economy. There's, you know, it causes a liquidity problem. And so I think what we're trying to do is, you know, these recent episodes have kind of been a real life case study. And so we're trying to go back and, and work on a kind of global scale to say, okay, is, is, do we have our rules and regulations set and calibrated correctly um, to manage the risk and make sure the markets continue to operate as, as they should. So I think the margin is, is the kind of the critical function or the critical risk management in the system. Um, but you also have to ask as we, we have more clearing, more products coming into the clearing space, is this risk getting too concentrated? Are we setting up a situation where you know you do have risk concentrated in a few areas? And that, so that's something that we're we're looking at with some of our um, international regulation groups, and really just kind of trying to go back and look in, at past events and and learn from that and study where we are now. Um, there's a lot of questions about in the chat about the role of power and natural gas in energy transition. So before we kind of come on to some of the future solutions and how we're going to come out of this period of volatility, and even if it does need intervention, can you just uh, set us up, Seb, maybe you can just talk to us a little bit more about the power markets, the natural gas markets, how, how volatile are they, what sort of the longer-term prognosis for those markets? I'll talk about Europe for a second because that's where the, um, <clears throat> the extremity of all the volatility really, uh, really focused so as, as we went through 21, when, when Europe started to um, uh, have its issues with turning on, on Nord Stream 2, which was, was, was one of the big Russian gas pipelines that would feed gas into Europe and, uh, and turning down that reliance, and obviously what manifested from there uh, led to just an extraordinary level of volatility. And it's interesting when you look at the players in commodities where there's consumers, there's producers, there's traders, and there's speculators. So each of them have their own natural position here. And... In the power markets in particular, you've had this quite dramatic change in terms of the consumer and producer behavior here. As prices start to dramatically increase, then it, it puts the onus on consumers to then forward hedge more, to lock in prices when prices in the forward curve uh, with the backwardation we have is essentially a lot lower. So there's an ability to almost buffer the, uh, that volatility that we see at the front end of the, of the price curve. And then on the production side, as you take thermal or fossil-generated power out of the stack more and more, they were the people who were, who were hedging longer term, so that natural offset between consumer and producer uh, liquidity and hedging starts to, starts to actually go the other way, because the producers used to hedge long term, now the consumers are looking to hedge more long term, and the producers now shifting towards renewables, naturally a wind producer will hedge less in forward space than they will in the prompt, sheerly round to the volatility of their production. So if I'm, a, if I'm a wind turbine farm and I know that my production can vary between 60% of my installed capacity down as low as 10%, then naturally I can't hedge forward with the same level of confidence, so I, I end up having to hedge more towards the prompt. So with that structural change and, and imbalance between supply and demand in terms of just sheer hedging flows, then you really need the role of speculators and, and traders to step in there and, and take the other side of that. How do you do that? We've got to motivate them through price signals where they, where they would be happy to step in there. So there's been this natural evolution, and we will continue to see that across many of the markets in which we're in, and then that, uh, that evolution of 
and requirement really for speculators and traders to still be a part of the market to help provide that liquidity that, that allows for that, um, that hedging dynamic to change and evolve over time. Thanks for uh, the interesting mentioning, obviously, the role of speculators and the need for them and then being attracted by the opportunity. And you mentioned Europe as well. I mean, what we've seen in Europe, though, is direct government intervention as a result of, okay, geopolitical circumstances. Ben, you, you, know, you trade natural gas both sides of the pond. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing, talk to Seb's points about that volatility and then bring in the role of natural gas? And, you know, ultimately... To government interventions, is this disrupting the market and making it even harder for traders to take positions, etc.? Yeah, well, it depends on what the government intervention is. And some of the recent things we've seen, um, like one example is in the UK that the government stepped in and putting a, a surplus tax or whatever it is on, on EMP companies because of the windfall, uh, windfall tax, sorry, which is, is somewhat counterintuitive because it's sort of disincentivizing them to go and produce because they're getting a windfall tax. Here in the US, I'm from, I live in the state of Connecticut, and the states abolished state tax on, on gasoline. And that to me seems, again, the wrong direction they want to head because you actually want to change consumers' behaviour. So rather than reduce, increasing taxes, rather than reducing taxes, you should be increasing taxes to change behaviour patterns so that we reduce demand. As it relates to, to natural gas and, and you know, government intervention, it's, it's, it's a slippery slope getting the governments involved because of what they're doing and why they're doing. And I'll, I'll use Germany as, as an example again. And, and I, I got Seb's point about you know, having, having coal as, as, as a reliable source that you can turn on when required, and that needs to be there when we move further down this transition. But making decisions about turning off all of that nuclear generation, which, by the way, is the cleanest fuel source there is because of what happened in Japan in 2011, is... They haven't. They, they've still got three plants that are on. That they, they're still turning off. So it's. It's. At what point do you want government to intervene? I, I think that at some point governments need to be involved as it relates to providing potentially some form of security or backstop as, if, if these commodity markets continue on this extreme volatility and high price environment. But bringing in regulation to 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 control how it's done and what is done is is, is a slippery slope. Summer, do you want to? Any, any comments <laughs> for the, uh, avoiding policy, perhaps? Yeah, no, I think so. That is always the the struggle with government action is you know this idea of do no harm, but also being a safety net. And so I think for me, I always worry when the government action is going to create a situation where the government is picking winners and losers. And I think some of what we're seeing is is a little bit headed in that direction, and that to me is concerning. We really should just be be a backstop. And I think the other the other thing with government regulation is you don't want to create more volatility. You don't want to create a situation where you're forcing people out of markets. And in doing that, you are essentially hurting liquidity and the usefulness of, of some of these markets. So it's a balancing act, and right now, particularly with the transition to, to a net zero economy, I think I have, you know, I have some concerns with, with some of the actions that are being taken by some of my f fellow regulatory agencies that um, you know, it's actually not going to help the transition, it's, it's actually going to make this more difficult. I don't think that's our role as government. Yeah, increasing uncertainty, because I think if we've established that these are 
there are rising prices, there's a normal cyclicality to the commodities world, but there are these exogenous factors that are making it highly challenging to, to manage, and we've established the role of trading and how vital that is. Ultimately, the, the sort of, as I would see it, and Matthew, maybe you can, can talk to this, is you need that investment to continue to inflow, you need more of that investment so that there are more participants, more able to warehouse that risk and, and so forth. And, this uncertain environment just adds to the existing, existing challenges. I think one of the things we haven't touched on yet is th these headwinds and challenges aren't exclusive to the energy space, right? So governments are encouraging or in some cases forcing the electrification of everything. Our power grid in most areas is 100 years old. I've read in, in certain research reports that, that we need an 11x investment in our, in our power grid and infrastructure to get to where we need to be, right? So what does that require? Metals copper, oli, et cetera, nickel. I mean, so it's not exclusive to the energy space, right? Um, some, of, some of the challenges that we're experiencing. Are we seeing the flow of investment to that? Or is it still, we're challenged somewhat by, again, uncertain markets, you know, there's uh, the ESG factor. Yeah, uh, the ESG factor is certainly, I think, the most recent party crasher, right? But over the past couple of decades, how did we get to where we are now? And, and what you could describe in many markets as structural underinvestment. I, I think there are a number of reasons, and I've listened to your podcast, right, uh, where, you've where you've talked about these. It's that, that Jeff Curry statement of old economy versus new economy, right? And, and, a, and a lot of the commodity spaces have just been left behind. Capital has flown elsewhere, right? So that is driving, I think, uh, the situation where we are now. Um, in terms of capital coming in, I, I think you can look at the upstream oil and gas space as one micro example of that, right? And it really hasn't come back in. Um, and it has increased, as a result, the marginal cost of production for a lot of these oil and gas producers because they're not spending 1.25 or one and a half times their free cash flow anymore, right? They're, they're financing their production and in increased wells with existing cash flow, right? So that is another example, I think, of, of the, the headwinds we're facing on capital coming into the space. I, I, think, I think the narrative is changing, though. I, every conversation I sat in last year, all I heard was ESG. It was just constant, constant, every conversation I had. I haven't heard it as much in the last three or four months, and I'm hearing more about energy security, energy independence, and those things. The dollars aren't yet flowing, but when the spreads get so great, when the, values, when the value is so great in there, the dollars should start to flow. And whether that's private equity money, whether that's, uh, I don't know what, I think it's probably not pension money, but the, the dollars will have to start to flow when the, the value there is so great. But the, the narrative certainly is changing. The dollars just haven't flowed after it yet. Seb, do you want to talk to that? I mean, I, I think Citadel themselves are starting to see this as an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, in, in very simple terms, there is, there was a regime prior to this in terms of just oil and gas production in the US where it was growth versus profitability and then the investors have now punished those companies for that regime. So now that we've gone into this period of creating free cash flow and, and, and high levels of profitability, then they're, they're very reticent to go back to that regime of growth versus profitability. So there is some restraint being, uh, being put in place here. It's actually being investor-led. So a lot, of the, a lot of the investors are pushing to the, uh, these companies to not actually grow at the same level. When you go one level below and you go to the private companies and you look into certain regions like the Haynesville, well, absolutely capital is flowing as fast as it should be and we're running as many rigs as we possibly can and production will surge in that, in that space. So capital is doing the right things. I think at a public company level, punishing for the old regime 
don't go back to that at a private level where it's more flexible capital that can, that can get into that sector and adapt more quickly to it. I think they're very, very able and, and uh, willing to go and uh, inject capital into that part of the industry. I might just touch on one other thing Summer said before, the, um, just to give a real-life example of governments intervening in, uh, in markets. And they don't do it for the wrong reasons. They do it always for the right reasons. But you, you talked about two things. One is volatility and the other was liquidity in the markets. Uh, it was three or four months ago, I think it was, when the European uh, Commission came out and said, from a security of supply standpoint, we should mandate that we should have gas storage filled to certain thresholds and levels at certain times of the year. And in the face of a complete lack of potential supply from Russia, those what they call storage tunnels or minimum levels of, of storage were just actually not able to be met if Russian gas flows stopped. So what happened? The market moved to the highest price it's ever moved to. We were close to $80 in MMBTU. Volatility went to just extraordinary levels of multiple hundreds of percent. And then what ensued from there was liquidity and open interest precipitously fell. So people just removed themselves from the market. It's government intervention, extraordinary levels of volatility because the market didn't actually know how to interpret what this new regulation and rule would mean because it was not really implementable in its, in its current form. And then people just ran away from being in the market, hedges, uh, traders, and, and speculators. And then one or two months afterwards, the, the, the commission came out and, and actually stipulated and, and almost rectified how they conveyed what they would do. And they would say, OK, we will try and reach these certain storage levels, assuming that Russian gas or gas is naturally available and flowing. And then the market calmed down again, and, and liquidity has come back again. But um, you can just see through these real-life examples of through all the right intentions, governments and regulators can step in there and say, right, we need to solve an immediate security of supply problem. Here's a policy. The market doesn't actually understand how to interpret it because it's quite ambiguous and, and not well implemented. And then liquidity and, uh, and volatility just uh, go in exactly the opposite direction. So it's a very uh, tenuous concept of how you actually intervene and how you stipulate policies and how well thought through they are and making sure you're doing it from, from a well-constructed uh, well standpoint. Staying with you, Seb, and staying on that point, most of the current structure of the commodity trading market here in North America as well as in Europe and elsewhere, you know, has grown up over the last decade in relatively low volatility, relatively free trade, and has therefore concentrated as well into a small number of players. When you start entering geopolitical risk, all of these other factors and government intervention, as you mentioned, I mean, is there analysis, I mean, do you, how much systemic risk do you see as this concentrated group of players trading in commodities and, and with event interventions like this? Uh, it, does, it does remind me a little bit of the banking uh, crisis in terms of what happened in 2008, where systemic risk is not a function of the companies themselves. They're, they're well-run companies. Uh, the majority of the companies that we deal with and, and, and uh, engage with, they have structurally uh, well-constructed balance sheets. They deal with other banks uh, like Matthew, et cetera, to, to put themselves in a strong position. But again, back to that, that simple concept of when you, when you run a business that has that level of leverage that is that exposed to volatility and that exposed to price rises, at a certain point, it actually doesn't matter if you have the, the most robust balance sheet of them all, the prices go up by 500%. You, you're, it's actually taken away from you to have control over that. So there was one Sunday night, I've got a, a few of the guys who work for me here, but we were talking one Sunday evening when crude oil prices were at over $130 for a moment in time. If crude oil prices had doubled again from that point because something dramatic happened within Russia and we just lost uh, enormous amounts of supply during that period, and crude oil prices above $200 in a very short period of time, 
there was absolutely systemic risk there. And not because these companies are not well run and, not, uh, and don't have strong balance sheets for the majority of circumstances and, and regimes and times we're in, but at the extremes, the, these companies can get stressed to a point where they will rely on being effectively bailed out by whether it be banks or even governments. And I think the, um, that concept has been underthought. We did escape, really, because crude oil prices and, and gas prices fell dramatically from that point, and then all the companies did what they should do, and they ran around and got, got their uh, finances in place to then get ready and prepared for the next potential doubling in prices. But there was absolutely a point where it was uh, tenuous for, a, I think, a lot of the industry in terms of how that could evolve if it, prices had just dramatically uh, increased again. Yeah, yeah, and indeed prompted in Europe a letter to the European Central Bank for potential support. Uh, Summer, do you want to comment on, on that? Well, I think, you know, the, the idea you know, post financial crisis of, of looking at centralized clearing was maybe to, again, centralize some of that risk so that, you know, major volatility, major market swings, you know, one player goes down, it does, it's not a domino effect and it doesn't take the rest of, it, rest of the players down. And so I think that's the role of, of centralized clearing and certainly, um, you know, some of the, the margin that's in the system to hopefully absorb those swings in the in the pricing, so that you know if if you do have the one the one player that that can't quite make the margin call or the risk is too great, um, that you're not creating a systemic collapse. And so, I mean, I think as as the regulators of this market, that's what we're always trying to look at is okay, you know, if we see another another situation like the one you know previous. You know, can the can the system withstand it? Yeah. One of the things that we we haven't touched on yet, but it's as and spoken by Jeff Curry as well, we are seeing in this kind of deglobal. You know, there isn't deglobalization going on. There's certainly an increasing great power rivalry that is changing and forecast to change the the energy map out there. And certainly, organisations triggered by COVID have moved from a, a just in time to a just in case setup. You know, again, that requires investment, but again, it's creating even more challenges to commodity traders operating traditionally in a free trade environment on a global basis. Ben, maybe you can talk to how you're seeing that impact commodity trading. Ben? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think Seb actually probably better, better sure. position to answer this one. The, um, I mean, what I found fascinating about the whole COVID period was the the thinness of the spare capacity we have in almost everything in the world. That can be labor. So when you're running at a 5% or, or lower unemployment rate and you have a shock of what happened where participation rates fell and then you, you're asking people to come back to work, that spare capacity of labor was just stressed to a point that we've never seen before. I mean, you can, and you can see it in every shop window that you drive past for help wanted. Commodities is the same thing. We run at very low thresholds of spare capacity through the demand versus supply and storage available. Um, it even made its way into the baby formula industry where that lack of spare capacity, where when the world's working perfectly well and globalization is doing what it, uh, what it has been, been uh, evolved to, uh, to get to the point of, that works fantastically well because lo low levels of spare capacity just ensures maximization of profit for everybody during that period. You then, you then get a period of deglobalization de and then you can't run at the same levels of spare capacity and commodities got uh, exposed to this at, at, at an extreme level. So 
what is the response here? Well, a lot of governments around the world are saying that in a just-in-case, it's really security of supply. I need to ensure that I have a diversification of suppliers. If I lose Russia as one of my suppliers, that's okay. I can actually still supply my, uh, my natural gas or oil from every other industry, country in the world uh, that, that I can buy from. I need to actually build more storage and, and have, uh, have less reliance on low levels of spare capacity. And I effectively need to hold just larger levels of inventory. If you take all three of those things, it just leads to higher prices. You're going up the cost curve because we're needing to produce more, we need to store more, we need to have more supplies from different regions. What transpires is essentially just a higher cost, less efficient commodity market. If, if one supplier can only send their oil to India, rather than the closest, cheapest uh, buyer in the, in, uh, within their proximity. It naturally just increases the ton miles of freight. It increases the cost of getting the commodity to each of the uh, consumers. Uh, and the whole process becomes very, very inefficient. And the world is actually structurally not there yet. We don't have the extra supply. We don't have the extra storage. What transpires during deglobalization is, is a pretty stressed, high-cost environment. Yeah. And do you see, I'm just looking at some of the questions, and we'll move to questions now. There's a few in there talking about inflation. Where do you guys stand on that? And that plays just into what you've just been saying, right, is you've got potentially a period of sustained inflation as you've got policies related to COVID, basically sort of monetary policies that are supporting wealth going into various communities, et cetera, but you've also got this just-in-case just narrative. Ben, maybe you can comment there on, on how much of this is we're going to enter an inflationary period. So, yeah, so inflation is... I personally, the personal view is I, I don't see a short-term end to it. I, I think a lot of it is going to be driven around energy price. I don't think there's a short-term end or solution as it relates to, to energy globally. That's driving all sorts of things, fertilisers. It, it, it's, 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 it's across the board. I, I don't think that, you know, it's, 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 you see it a lot here in terms of monetary policy and the Fed and what are the Fed are doing in terms of interest rates and how do they control, you know, inflation going forward, again, we need to see consumer behaviour change and we need to see consumers stop doing certain things. But everywhere, everywhere I go and everywhere I do, you know, the, the people are spending money, you know, people are travelling, everybody I know is going away for, you know, for the summer vacation, everyone's on the road. Trying to get to the airport yesterday took me an hour and a half, like everybody's still in their cars, everyone's driving around and gas where we are is $5.25 a gallon. I think the inflation story is, is, is here for, for, for a period of time. I don't think it goes away. I mean, inflation for me is it's, it's reasonably simple. It's, it's too much money chasing too few goods. Post-COVID, governments around the world just poured money into the system. They gave uh, consumers excessive amounts of uh, available spending money, and that stimulus has effectively been one of the core drivers of what, is, what has driven, um, uh, driven this inflation that naturally will become less of an effect over time as people have spent that money or continue to spend that money and then um, and as that starts to dry up. Then there's the supply side constraints or logistical constraints that we've seen here. So the actual movement of the products and the parts across the world has, has certainly been interrupted through COVID here and, and, and the natural flow of parts and goods from, say, China into, into the US is meaning that cars are just being able to be produced at a much lower rate than what they would normally. That is not transitory that is still continuing at this point in time, so I don't see that um, abating in the short term. And then back to the other point of just the inefficient movement of commodities around the world, we will continue to see that when, when Russia and the Ukraine are continuing to have their issues and there is a, an east-west divide that is continuing to, uh, to be drawn, 
then commodity prices will naturally feed back into that um, just in time, just in case an inefficient flow of, of commodities around the world. So I think, I think what's unnatural for a lot of people and, and central bankers, including Yellen, didn't actually understand the magnitude of all three of those. The impact of stimulus was probably the easiest one to understand. The supply side constraints was less well understood. She's come out and said she didn't really understand the impact of that. And then when it comes to the nuances of commodity markets and why prices are going higher, when you have an SPR release that Biden put out of 180 million barrels and crude oil prices go higher, people don't understand the nuances of exactly why that is the case. Refining capacity being lower and oil production not coming back online through OPEC is a, is a it's quite a detailed concept that most people just don't understand the, uh, the granularity or the uh, idiosyncrasies of what's driving that. So I think inflation will last for longer, partly because it's happening in a way that people don't truly understand and we haven't seen either before or for a long time. Maybe, Paul, maybe I'd add to that. One question for me is how much has, has China's pursuit of zero COVID kept a lid on some of this, this spending, right? If that can be released and, and there's more money chasing less goods, what will be the inflationary impact right, of that? So that, that's also a, a question that I have. And, and the potential impact of China coming back online full stream. Any comments on, on China? <laughs> okay, so a question from the, uh, a question from the group uh, is, do you anticipate the maintenance of fossil fuel supply for emergencies will be concentrated in a few countries or be prioritized by each domestic supply chain? I'd like to add that, you know, do we see that? I mean, who's going to pay for that, right? How are countries going to maintain a baseload of fossil in emergencies? So I think each country is going to look at their energy independence themselves and try and protect themselves initially. The federal government came out when Ukraine and, and Russia occurred and said, we're going to send more LNG to Europe. I don't know how logistically that's possible, but you know, that was just, a, I think, a political statement. Here in the US, if we look at our storage, we have, we have the ability to store. Um, as it relates to natural gas, one of the challenges I think we have with natural gas is we produce demand, you know, the supply and demand scenario in the US roughly today is about 100 BCF a day. 12 years ago, it was 50 BCF a day. We had four TCF of storage today, and we had four TCF of storage 12 years ago. Our flexibility is being eroded. You know, we ran, we're running some scenarios about in the event of a 2013-14 winter event that we saw, which was extreme cold, you know, what does our balance of natural gas in storage look like? It's getting close to empty. It's, it's, it's a challenging time. And no one's going to go and build more natural gas storage. Well, the government may have to, but no, no one's going to go and build more natural gas storage because the forward curve doesn't dictate that you would do it. You can't, you can't fund it. Um, thanks for that. So uh, one for you, Seb, and, and maybe Summer as well. How do you view the increased risks that are put on hedge brokers in a period of increased volatility? Any protections or changes to policy to mitigate? Firstly, Seb, maybe you can talk to the, the risks out there. I guess it comes back to, to margins and so forth. Yeah, when I put myself in the place of a small, a small trading business, the, sometimes that, that lack of forward transparency over what, what margins will do over time is actually what's very important. So larger companies um, uh, in, the trading, in the trading businesses and ours in particular, we, we try and forecast what those changes in both prices and therefore um, end on what the initial margins will be. But a lot of these companies are, are really uh, reactive to those changes. So there was a period of time in some of the markets, um, in March in particular in Europe, where the, those margins were getting changed on an almost bi-weekly basis or weekly basis for a period of time. And then you only have a, a few days to respond to that. So 
that level of transparency of, I could almost envisage a matrix of if prices do X and volatility goes to Y, then this is what your requirement from a funding and, uh, and margin requirement will, will actually be, because then you can start running those simulations for smaller trading companies that don't have the same technical capability to uh, forecast what those changes would be. But um, anything that gives forward-looking ability to, have, to be transparent around what that means for, for funding uh, and liquidity needs is, is certainly advantageous to the business. Someone would you like to comment on that? Well, I think it's Seb ended with kind of this forward-looking. Um, I think the problem is the government tends to be backward-looking. <laughs> that that seems to be the way we operate. Um, and you know, I think in this space, you know, that's kind of what we're doing again. We're looking at okay, what did what did we see? What can we learn? What changes can be made from from the volatility we've seen over the last two years? And you know, are there things that we can do better? What I will say from the regulator I work for, or you know, CFTC, is we do try to really have an open door policy and listen to market participants, traders, and users, and get ideas from them, get suggestions from them. How can we make this better? How do we make this more transparent? What can we do to improve the system? And I think you'll see that continue for the next year or so as, as we kind of look back at what happened before. But again, it, the government tends to be backward looking, preparing for the last crisis, not the next one. And you know, it's, it's kind of a mindset that we have, to, we have to try to get out of, but it's kind of the natural, the natural way, the, the, at least the, the US federal government approaches these things. Thank you. Um, final question, I'll throw this to Ben. You mentioned gas at 525. Uh, where do you think it's going? At, at, sorry, at 950? 525, sorry. Sorry, gas is at 950. Oh, sorry, uh, gasoline. Gasoline in your car. Uh, I, I, honestly, it, it could be seven bucks. I, 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 don't, I, I struggle to see it going lower as we head into summer. Again, when you have state governments eliminating taxes on fuel to keep prices lower and rather than increasing taxes to change consumer behaviour. Until such point we see changes in consumer behaviour and I think from, from what we can tell right now, demand is still there at 525 so it, it's, it's going to continue to rise because I don't see you know, refining you know, picking up anytime soon. So, Final comment, Seb? I mean, you're getting into a very, very nuanced part of the, of the commodity industry in terms of gasoline. I mean, there's a... Um, I can start painting a picture for you and you can, you can start thinking about where prices will go, but if you start reducing the, the ability to export products from Russia, i.e. Uh, what you can put through, through refineries and refinery runs drop, and you don't actually have the refining capacity to then run that oil and, and uh, uh, straight run products through other upgrading units in other parts of the world, you will run short of products in a particular gasoline in the next six months. So there are two, very, two or three very large refineries coming on at the back end of this year. But there is a point for the next three to four months where you could reach a constraint that we have not yet seen in, in the gasoline market and, and how we respond to that. Uh, I think, the, I think the, the, the governments and regulators are thinking we can, we can easily ban Russian exports of oil and products and then we go to our friends in OPEC and they turn their oil production up. But actually, if you don't have the constituent parts of gasoline, which is uh, what comes through the refinery and, and the uh, high octane components that you blend with it in place to then provide the product, then gasoline prices can go to $300 and oil prices can stay at $100. So there's this very tenuous um, 
period that we could go through here. Um, I'd, be, I'd be very interested to see what, what actually happens and manifests itself as we go through this, uh, this process of banning oil and products from Russia and this lack of refining capacity and, uh, and blending components in this near-term period, what it actually means for the markets. But it could be, it could be extreme. I think, I think diesel and jet fuel could be even more interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we've painted a picture of uh, just how challenging the commodity sector is at the moment to, to manage the risks and some of the volatility that organizations face. I want to thank our panelists. Matthew Rossetti, Head of Commodity Finance at ING Americas, Summer Merzinger, Commissioner at the CFTC, Ben Sutton, Founder and CEO of 61 Commodities, and Seb Barak, Leader of the Commodities Platform at Citadel. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.